Good morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to work with our high school and college students. And it's my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. I don't know if you know this, but it is 20 days until Christmas. We have a very charming little countdown sign in our house. Uh, has the number of days until Christmas. Very vintage, very retro. I think Joanna Gaines either made it or would surely approve of the way it looks. But uh, it has these little tiles with the numbers, and the kids love to change the tiles each day to make sure that the countdown is accurate. But they have a very non-vintage way of determining the number Kid comes downstairs in the morning, looks at the quaint, charming countdown sign and says, Alexa, how many days is it till Christmas? <laughs> Alexa says the number and the sign is enthusiastically updated. So however you do it, this is a season of anticipation. And Advent, as it's traditionally observed by Christians, is a chance for us to re-inhabit the ancient anticipation that God's people uh, had for the coming Messiah, and it's also a chance for us to nurture our own anticipation for the return, the second coming of the Messiah. So how we are going to do that in this uh, month's sermon series is we are going to explore what Jesus brings. When Jesus comes, when he arrives, what realities does he bring with him? And I think answering that question can help us have a more concrete, uh, a more focused enjoyment of Christmas because it reminds us why his birth is actually worth celebrating. Why is it that his return is worth waiting for? There are particular reasons why those things are true. So we're going to look over the next few weeks at four things Jesus brings when he comes. This morning, we will explore the fact that when Jesus comes, he brings life. When Jesus comes, he brings life. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This morning, we'll be looking at John 10, verses 7 through 16. John 10, 7 to 16. Follow along as I read God's Word. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is God's word. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we receive this from you as your very word, spoken to us through your servant John. Help us now to receive it with faith and honesty, and would you use it to stir up in us a deeper knowledge of you through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when Jesus comes, he brings life. Jesus himself says as much in this passage, and he does that through two images, the door and the good shepherd. Jesus uses two figures of speech, two metaphors to describe the kind of king he is to his people. So let's look at both of these pictures and explore how it is that Jesus brings life. So first, the door. This image dominates verses 7 through 10. So this passage really has just two parts. 7 through 10, Jesus is the door, and then 11 through 16, Jesus is the good shepherd. So 7 through 10, Jesus is the door, which means... He secures the flourishing of his people. Jesus secures the flourishing of his people. Look at the text with me. Verse 7, we see this this statement, I am the door of the sheep. So he, he compares himself to a door. Skip over to verse 9, and we get a little more clarity about what the meaning of this picture is. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So if you have a sheep enclosure, uh, you need a door or a gate for the sheep to come and go. A, A door allows the sheep to enjoy both the security of the enclosure and the nourishment of the surrounding 
pasture, right? If there was no door, uh, either the sheep would be stuck outside and they would eventually get eaten, or they would be stuck inside and eventually they would starve. So the door facilitates the very life of the sheep. And Jesus is saying he does that for his sheep, his people, those who belong to him. Look at how he puts it in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but here's why Jesus came. Verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What a statement. So here is one purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus came in order to provide life for his people. And he quickly adds the kind of life, the the quantity of life he intends for his people to have. It is abundant. So this isn't Jesus coming to give us just enough life to get by. This is Jesus saying, I came so that you could have more life than you actually need. I came so that you could have life with plenty to spare, life overflowing. Now, certainly this includes the idea of everlasting life, life beyond the grave. But the focus here is actually on the quality of existence we can enjoy now. Listen to how uh, Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, describes this. He says, The life Jesus' true disciples enjoy is not to be construed as more time to fill, but life at its scarcely imagined best. That's what Jesus came to give us. Life at its scarcely imagined best. we, We know intuitively and by experience that there is a difference between merely continuing to exist and flourishing, thriving, having a good, full life. To quote uh, the great Hoosier poet, John Mellencamp, life goes on, you know the rest, long after the thrill of living is gone. It's a catchy song, but it's a haunting line. And it's one that that many of us know from experience, that you can get to a place where you are alive in name only. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. So a question that we have to wrestle with is, what's the content here of abundant life? I think it's fair to say this is not just a blank canvas that we can fill with our preferences. Like, well, my abundant life is a warm cup of coffee and a lot of good books. Oh, that's nice. My abundant life is 18 holes and an iced tea. I mean, those are great. But there's a framework of thought behind what Jesus is saying here. The the Bible has a framework that informs us that there is no true enjoyment of life apart from God. Because God is the source 
and the purpose of life. And if you read the book of John, you see that the way John describes Jesus is God in the flesh. So what Jesus does, or we could say what Jesus is, he is God dwelling with us. And his mission is to dismantle the barriers that separate us from God. So the, the flourishing that Jesus is describing in verse 10 is profoundly God-oriented. It is deeply God-saturated. This kind of abundant life is beautifully captured in that famous statement from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, the chief end of man, that is to say, the ultimate reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, that kind of life is not limited to religious practices, quote-unquote. Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is, is big enough to include the simple joys of ordinary life. Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is, is deep enough to hold even through the sufferings of life. Jesus secures our flourishing by bringing God to us and bringing us home to God. Here's a really simple way to make this more of a lived experience. You ready? This is really (laughs) obvious, but try it. Talk to God throughout your day. Talk to God throughout your day. I mean, think about it. If you are a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, He has made it so that the God of the universe is relationally with you through your hardest parts of the day, your most mundane parts of the day, your most enjoyable parts of the day. God is there. God is with you. God is for you available, as it were, to be enjoyed by you. So, talk to God as you pass through those stressful or enjoyable or mundane moments. Enjoy God all throughout your day. Now, before we move on to the second image, uh, starting in verse 11, we have to circle back to 7 through 10 and notice something very significant, which is that Jesus is establishing this claim about himself in part by way of a contrast. Did you you notice that? Look at verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. He, He circles back to that again in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So he's establishing a contrast here between the door, which secures and facilitates life, and the thief who takes life, deprives the sheep of flourishing. The the contrast 
really couldn't be any sharper. You have Jesus securing our flourishing, and you have the thief uh, pursuing his gratification at the sheep's expense. So who, who does Jesus have in mind here? Who is he thinking of? Well, it's, it's possible and likely, in fact, that he's probably thinking at least of the religious leaders of his day. Because this passage follows right on the heels of John chapter 9, where the religious leaders were pretty hostile to the flourishing of the man born blind, whom Jesus healed. So we have this fresh example of two different approaches to suffering sheep. Jesus heals the man born blind. The Pharisees uh, throw him out of the synagogue when he refuses to criticize Jesus. So that's one possibility. It's also possible that Jesus is is thinking of the uh, messianic pretenders that were not uh, unknown in the ancient Jewish world. Jesus was not the first person in Palestine to claim to be the Messiah. He, He wouldn't be the last one either. So here's the bottom line. In order for Jesus to establish his rightful claim to be the king, king of Israel, ultimately the king of the world, uh, he has to respond to the claims of his rivals, those who would say that they are the rightful king. And in every age, in every place, there are rival kings to Jesus. In every age, in every culture, Jesus is never the only one promising abundant life. It might be a a, a person promising abundant life. It might be an ideology. It can also be something as simple as as a value, something we're after in life. For example, in our culture, I think it's safe to say many people, many of us, if we're honest, we make achievement king. We say deep in our hearts, never out loud, but we say, if I can just rack up enough professional wins, my life will be full. I'll be living the good life then. For other people, maybe it's, it's pleasure or, or comfort. You, you elevate that, you make that king, you chase after that in search of the good life, in search of flourishing, looking for that thing to provide you abundant life. For you, maybe it's power, control, having the ability to manage any person, any situation, whatever it is. The question that we're confronted with here is, do you really want to make that thing your king? Jesus is saying that any king but him will take more than it gives. Any king but Jesus eventually will take more than it gives. Now, now these examples, uh, they're not bad. Achievement, comfort, control, these can be good servants under the kingship of Jesus. But you make any one of them, or anything else for that matter, king, and it will eat you alive eventually. So as we observe Advent, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, here's something to reflect on, for all of us to reflect on. With all honesty, complete this sentence in your mind. 
I would be satisfied with my life if only I had what comes next for you. What, what fills in the blank. Not, not in your maybe uh, conscious uh, thoughts, but in your actual gut level motivations. My life would be satisfying if only I had what? Something's coming to your mind right now. Now here's a follow-up question. Whatever that thing is, whatever rises to the top that, that you say, yeah, more often than not, that's what I look to to rule me in the hopes that it will give me abundant life. Now ask this question. What has that thing actually given you? I mean, look back. Look at the track record of the thing that you are tempted to make your king and ask, what has it actually done? What has it provided you? And then also ask, what has it taken? What has it required of you? What has it extracted from you? Friends, following Jesus means that we daily seek to transfer yet again our trust from these false fraudulent kings back to Jesus so that we are daily seeking to renew our trust in this statement if only I had more of Christ I would be satisfied with my life Jesus comes to secure the flourishing of his people that's verses 7 through 10 let's move on now to verses 11 through 16 where a new Uh, sort of adjacent metaphor comes into view, which is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, which means he rescues his people by giving up his life for them. Jesus rescues his people by giving up his life for them. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 really summarizes this whole section. I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, when you hear shepherd, don't immediately think of like a nice, cuddly person holding a precious moment's little lamb. Uh, Shepherding, well, for one thing, it was kind of a rough job, but more relevant to this, shepherding in the ancient world was a common metaphor for ruling, for, for kingship. So Jesus is, uh, among other things here, saying he's the king. But he's also interested, maybe more so, interested in showing us what kind of king he is. And here, once again, the contrast is illuminating because he, he makes this claim in part by drawing another contrast. Just as the door was compared to the thief in 11 through 16, the shepherd is compared to the hired hand. Look at verse 12. So he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So the person who tends the sheep merely for a wage, Jesus says, is not sufficiently invested in them to actually risk his life when danger appears. Quite simply, the sheep do not matter enough 
to the hired hand for him to risk his life for their protection. And look at the contrast that Jesus shifts to in verse 14. So that's the hired hand. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Let me just make a couple observations at this point. First of all, what this is showing us is that the price of giving us life was Jesus giving up his own. The, the cost of giving us that abundant life that verse 10 talks about was unavoidably the giving up of Jesus' own life. Notice he does not say merely, I'm the good shepherd, I am willing to lay down my life if perhaps it comes to that. No, he states it in verse 14 as a fact of his shepherding. It is a constituent element of his shepherding that he lays down his life. What we find, again, in the broader framework that Jesus is working within is that the only way for those barriers between us and God to be dismantled is for a perfect sacrifice, a perfect representative to stand in our place. Whether you feel it or not, you came into this world with the power of Satan, the poison of your sin, and the wrath of God bearing down on you. And what Jesus does is he stands in the path of those deadly forces so that you can live. The price of giving us life is Jesus losing his. That's the first observation. Second, Jesus is willing, dare we say even glad, to give up his life for his people because he already has a personal connection to them. Jesus is willing to give up his life for his people because he already has a personal connection to them. It's not that they will become his sheep one day. They are his sheep. Look at verse 16. This, I think, makes it very clear. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. He's talking there about Gentiles. He's talking about non-Jews who at this point have not even heard of Jesus. They will one day come to believe, and Jesus can, can look at them even now and say, they're my sheep. They're my people. All that's left is for them to be gathered to me. This, is, uh, this involves things that are hard for us to understand, but I think we can at least say this much from these verses. Jesus died for all who would one day trust in him because in one sense they were already his. Jesus died for everyone who would one day trust in him because in a very real sense all of those people were already his. Now I don't know how that lands on you but let me just say this is intended to be a great comfort. Jesus does not give us these statements in order to give us a metaphysical puzzle to solve. Jesus doesn't give us these statements uh, in order to cruelly taunt us. Like, maybe you're a sheep, 
Maybe you're not. Maybe you're mine. Maybe you're not. No. Jesus gives us these statements to show us that his love for us is far deeper than we could even imagine. Think of what this means. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you are a believer in him, when he died on the cross, one of the driving motivations for him was concern for you. It wasn't just a generic benevolence, a sort of abstract nobility of spirit. He died because he wanted you to live. And here's the amazing thing. If you are not yet trusting in Jesus, that can be true of you if you trust in Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. John, who wrote this book, he says at the very end of the book, in chapter 20, he says his purpose in recording these stories, giving us these words, is to persuade us to believe, to trust in Jesus. So this paragraph in John 10 is meant to draw you to Jesus. It is telling you the kind of love with which Jesus loves anyone who trusts in him. It's, it's showing you the kind of king he is, the price that he was willing to pay for our life. When Jesus comes, he brings life. We've seen in this passage that he secures our flourishing. He rescues us by giving up his own life. And can I just say how different this is than we often think of Jesus. I remember growing up uh, seeing this bumper sticker I haven't seen it as much lately, but it it said, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) Obviously, tongue-in-cheek, but I think that captures something about how our suspicious, unbelieving hearts tend to view Jesus. Jesus, the killjoy, coming to break up the fun. Jesus, the self-righteous rule follower, coming to make us all look bad. Jesus, the demanding taskmaster, coming to give us more stuff to do. Is that the picture of this passage? Now, make no mistake, Jesus is the king, which means uh, one part of embracing Jesus is submitting to his reign, meaning, quite simply, doing what he says. But... What this is showing us, what this is reminding our suspicious hearts is that Jesus is the kind of king whose reign expands rather than diminishes our joy. His rule gives us more, not less, of what we most deeply need. The reign of Jesus enriches our lives rather than impoverishes our lives. That is the kind of king he is. When Jesus comes, he brings life. Now, it's almost too obvious to say, but we don't yet experience this fully, do we? That's because we live in between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. 
Because Jesus has been raised, we do begin to get a taste of this abundant life. We do start to experience it now, but not until he returns will we feast on the fullness of it. And so we live in between. So for now, our bodies still break down and die. Uh, The thrill of living does grow dim. It is our reality that we often stumble our way through life. But here's the reality. Here's the other reality. Christians know which way to stumble. In the direction of Jesus Christ, the life-giving King. We celebrate the fact that He came to secure our flourishing, to rescue us by the sacrifice of His own life, and we wait. We wait for Him to return. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us incredible kindness in sending your Son to take on our nature, to join us in the human race, to join us in history, and to do the things that were absolutely necessary for us to be restored to you. Lord, we acknowledge that this abundant life is a gift that sometimes we we hardly know how to open. We, We hardly know how to enjoy this. But God, by your grace, we are trying. And we pray that you would give us more grace to enjoy more of this flourishing, this life at its best. God, we are convinced that it is only found in Christ. Would you help our unbelief? Would you bring us back when we drift yet again to the fraudulent kings who take more than they give? And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come back for us and please finish what you started. Amen.